Hey there, thank you for joining us here on The Conversation. I'm Brooke Thomas filling in for Jenk tonight. He is headed to Atlanta, in Atlanta, excuse me, for the big debate that's happening at Tyler Perry Studios. So I am jealous times 10, it's gonna be a great experience. But we have a great show for you right now, tonight, let's get to it. First up, we have Charlene McRae, actually the first lady of New York City to talk about the city's Thrive Conference and what cities are doing overall when it comes to mental health issues. First lady, Charlene McRae, thank you so much for being here with us. Hello, Brooke, glad to be here. I am incredibly glad to talk to you. For our viewers, can you explain what cities thrive? Cities Thrive is a coalition of roughly 200 cities and counties who have banded together to share best practices around mental health, behavioral health, because the federal government is missing in action and we need to work together to help people. There's so many people are suffering right now and don't have the services that they need. And Cities Thrive is kind of filling in the gap by making sure that people can have a conversation about what they're doing at home to help people. And I want to know, at least, you know, for our viewers, you know, why did you start this? Why is this something that became such a passion for you? There's a personal aspect to this, right? Absolutely. You know, we all have personal stories. <laughs> yeah. In fact, that was one of the first things I asked people at this conference. How many of you have a personal story? Can you please raise your hand? Every single hand went up because we, you know, mental illness and and the substance misuse are are so common. One in five is is the statistic. Now I have mental illness in my family, certainly substance misuse, but so does everyone else in some way or another, whether it's direct or indirect. For me, growing up, it was, you know, my, I believe my parents suffered from untreated depression. I don't know for sure because they were never diagnosed, but that had an effect on me. Um, when I was growing up, I was uh, subject to discrimination and bullying, and that had an effect on me growing up. Um, and, and, you know, gave uh, me tremendous anxiety in, in my life. Uh, you know, these are things that we don't talk about very much and we need to have more open honest conversations because it's all around us it's part of the human condition that we have these emotions that that we can 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 treat can help people be more resilient with and and that's what cities thrive is all about it's about sharing stories and sharing programs and services that that we can all do in our in our home localities. I want to expand on something that you just said you mentioned that's something that you ask everyone like who yes. has a personal story and everyone raises their hand. Do you think mm-hmm. that this program do you think Cities Thrive is helping destigmatize mental health? Yes, I do. You do. In fact, you know, we held our first conference in 2016, and you know, people were just so happy to be in the same room with one another, talking about something that you know we weren't having open conversations about. I've seen a dramatic difference from 2013 when we launched Thrive NYC to now, when we are we are seeing so many more people and celebrities and and sports, well, athletes talking about their personal stories. It's amazing. 
um, the, the change that is uh, coming over our country. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the conference. So uh, who, who was there? What do you think uh, was accomplished? Well, first of all, I think that people left the conference with a tremendous sense of, of, uh, of hope. Mm-hmm. Um, that because they heard so much about what was going on around the country. And we had 80, roughly 80 cities and counties uh, there from places like you know, New Hampshire, Colorado, uh San Francisco, Toronto. Uh, we even had someone from London, uh, Jackie Dyer, who was fantastic, did an amazing presentation. And, and, and everyone shared their stories, their stories of, of um, their own personal struggles and what they were doing in, at home, what they were doing in local government to change the way people see mental illness, the way people treat mental illness and substance misuse um, in a way that's positive, in a way that is um, affirming. I think I saw it reported that nearly, I think 150,000 people, it says it has have been helped so far just this year um, with their mental health issues. Is that number right? That's a, that's a lot of people. Well, that's, that's, that's probably a, a drop in the bucket, actually. Yeah. Um, when you hear the number one in five people are, are, are suffering, that you know there are a lot of people out there who need help. You know, we have a helpline in, in New York City uh, that you know, we've received more than 770,000 calls over the last three years. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Mm. What would you say, I think, the biggest issue? What would you say the biggest issue is when it comes to people getting the help they need? Uh, the biggest issue is stigma. Mm-hmm. Um, people are afraid to reach out. Um, some people don't know that they can reach out, don't know that they have a, a, a condition that, that can be helped. Uh, but stigma is still very big. Um, people have been taught that um, showing that kind of, of need for help is, is a weakness or that it's a character flaw. Uh, and, and so they are reluctant to tell anybody about what they're going through. Now, we have a lot of work to do still in this area. So we, we encourage people to share their stories, especially people in positions of power, people, you know, leaders, athletes, celebrities. Uh, tell your stories because we know that when people share their stories, it makes it easier for other people to, to share what they're going through or to reach out for help. Something I hear a lot, something I think a lot of people across the country are always talking about, um, a need for an overhaul of how emergency crews respond to people dealing with severe uh, mental health issues. How important do you think that is? Oh yes, we have a lot of work to do. Yeah. We have to do a lot of retraining so that um, our, our front facing um, public response units, whether they're uh, police officers or firefighters or, you know, that, that people are trained in crisis intervention, that people are sensitive to what someone who may be having a psychotic episode or a psychotic break, what they're feeling and how to treat them with sensitivity and not re-traumatize them in the process. Absolutely. Um, what have you heard as far as you know other cities across the globe? What are they doing to uh, work on and better serve people dealing with mental health issues? You see, New York City is kind of a leader in this. Uh, we are a leader in yeah. this, and we are sharing everything that we do because we want. Uh, first of all, we, we we learn from others, 
and we want to want people to learn from us as well. So there is now a Thrive London, for example, and I know that there are, are people all around the country are looking at the, our model uh, with our six principles and, and, and looking at how they can replicate some of our programs. Uh, again, the federal government is, is, is not really present uh, in this area and, and we have to do more. Too many people are suffering. You mentioned athletes and you know other prominent people like opening up and being honest about something that affects everybody essentially. And I've seen you know many reports of you opening up and telling personal stories and you just told us a bit earlier. Why is that important to you specifically to kind of share your own personal stories? Oh, it's important for me because I want people to know that that you know first of all for for. Those who look like me, you know, little mm-hmm. girls, little boys, other you know folks who would be um, reluctant to share their story for fear of stigma, that they'll be encouraged. So if I, if, if I can share my story, if, if I can, then and other people will feel like they can as well. It's the same thing when um, our, our faith leaders or celebrities like Serena Williams they they tell their stories. Other people feel like, oh, well, I mean. If they can, they can tell their stories, then I can too. It just makes people feel a little more comfortable with the subject matter. Absolutely. First Lady of New York City, Sherlane McRae, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you, Brooke. I appreciate your time. Thank you. All right, we're gonna take a quick break and be right back to talk about debt in America when it comes to black Americans and the disparity there. There's a lot to get into, stay with us. Hey there, welcome back to the conversation. I am still Brooke Thomas, still filling in for Jenks tonight. Thank you so much for joining us. I wanna jump right in with our next interview. We are being joined all the way from Germany. And I'm so thankful because I know it's incredibly late there, but we have Edna Bonhomme, postdoctoral fellow, historian, activist, and writer. Thank you so much for staying up super late to talk to us, I appreciate it. So uh, you wrote a piece for The Nation titled, Debt is Holding Black Americans Hostage, saying we need an honest conversation about reparations and forgiveness on a mass scale. And I wanna break the article down because I think it's great. Also, I, I wanna know first, you know, why was this something you wanted to write about? So part of the reason I wanted to write about this is because I feel that there are various contradictions in how the U.S. presents itself versus the reality of what people have been living through, especially since the economic crisis began in 2008. On the one hand, um, I have a lot of privileges. I um, am uh, college educated. I've had an opportunity to go to Ivy League schools. I have a PhD. And yet the reality is, is that um, as a black American, as a uh, child of two immigrants, especially two immigrants from Haiti. Mm -hmm. Um, I also have student loan debt. Um, I currently live in Berlin, Germany. That's where I was able to find a postdoctoral fellowship. Um, And I see in the people that I uh, come across in Europe, particularly friends of mine who went to university for free, uh, who are debt free, who don't necessarily find themselves um, ha- hanging over having this financial burden over their heads. And so um, my motivation to write the piece was to see the life that I'm living here, which is one in which um, I'm surrounded with people who have uh, 30 days vacation, um, access to health care, um, uh, no student loan debt, and, and seeing the presidential com- uh, debates from afar, what that looks like and what it means to actually have a serious conversation about the financial crisis and its aftermath. 
Let's break down more of the student debt aspect of this. You were just talking about it there and the average student loan debt is $37,102, right? You noted yours is much higher and the student debt is about 7,400 higher for black Americans and their white peers and there are multiple reasons for this, right? Yeah, so the, the, the 37,000 is for people who um, just have an undergraduate degree. So uh, at the time that I had under, uh, finished on my undergraduate degree, I actually had less debt than I do now and less than that average. However, the major issue was my master's uh, program at an Ivy League institution, which very much um, contributed to a majority of that debt. And at the time I was living in New York City, uh, which with the cost of living also increased um, the, the, the debt that I um, borrowed. Um, so that that's something to also um, uh, take, take stock of, the differences between if people decide to continue their higher education versus if they uh, end up um, um, just getting the bachelor's. Beyond that, the problem with debt, particularly for um, black um, Americans, is that often they borrow higher. Um, often uh, we end up borrowing higher. Sometimes uh, the, the interest is also increasing. So outside of just uh, student loans, there's a way in which um, not being able to pay um, off the interest contributes uh, to the, the, the broader debt. Moreover, um, as people know, with the wage disparities that exist amongst African-Americans, um, that contributes to people not being able to pay off in a timely manner. Uh, programs such as the income-based uh, repayment extension um, programs are able to mitigate that somewhat, but it is it's not um, the, 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 the biggest, um, it's, it's not the thing that helps um, everyone. And that wage disparity, the pay gap, it's, this is even worse for black women, specifically mm -hmm. when it comes to being able to pay this off and not continuously just add to your debt. Yeah, definitely. And part of the, um, so to give a, a sense of, of for your viewers, what the um, wage disparities or actually not just wage, but debt disparities are is that um, the median uh, net worth of a black um, uh, family is $16,000 and the median net work of a, a white family, their counterpart is $162,000. Uh, a single black woman um, between the ages of 36 and 49 um, on average has a net work of $5. Um, and this is accounting for what people make and earn as their income uh, versus what they owe. And the, what they owe could be anything from the debt that they've accumulated, mortgage, um, credit card, health um, um, inequities, as well as the student loan debt. Exactly, because yeah, as you kind of just talked about there, this goes far beyond student loans. You also pointed out there's so much information in this piece. You, you pointed out a 2016 US Federal Reserve study, and, and you just mentioned for for black women, a $5 net worth. There was an average of you know a zero or a negative net worth when it comes to black households, 19% of black households. And I like how you broke down that the roots of that can be traced to slavery. Yeah, so I, as a historian, I'm always looking back in time uh, for better or worse, and I'm trying to understand more deeply not just what's happening in the United States, but also in the Middle East and North Africa, where my research is focusing on. And uh, one thing that uh, one as like I mentioned earlier, my parents are from Haiti, and uh, the history of slavery is one in which. European countries that were involved in the slave trade, whether indirectly or directly, um, whether they transported uh, uh, 
you know, people by force, uh, African uh, people uh, to the Americas and the Caribbean, in South America, North America, and the United States being one of them. In fact, the largest uh, slave population ended up in uh, Brazil and Haiti or Santo Domingue, where my family uh, was brought or ancestors were brought was what part of that. The debt comes into play when we think about what happens when people became free and how that looked very different from country to country. In Haiti, for example, freedom came with a price whereby Haitians uh, post-independence were um, paid for their liberation towards France. Um, and this very much meant that uh, Haiti, even till today, is quite indebted. In fact, it's the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere at the moment, and it is currently undergoing a another kind of resurgence of austerity, not just against the freedom that it paid for, but against the um, International Monetary uh, Fund Fund and IMF, World Bank, and the loans that were queued uh, by a dictator um, during the, the 70s, 80s, as well as the ongoing um, military occupation by the UN. So this his, the relationship between the history of enslaved Africans mm-hmm. who touched upon the Americas and the wealth and the, the riches that they created being denied to them um, or even just repair for that is, is part of an ongoing debate for which is for what why many um, have um, spoken about like Tanahashi's code codes the case for reparations was one example thinking about reparations and the housing crisis in the United States people in the Car- Caribbean through Caricom have also been advocating to Europeans um, for reparations to formerly a former uh, enslaved people in the Caribbean as well so it's an ongoing and an international debate. It's a wonder why it's not more of an international discussion that France immediately just paid back the billions of dollars. When it comes to reparations in the US, there's a big discussion and a lot of things that would have to be figured out. I understand that. When it comes to France and Haiti, that's pretty clear. They were still paying that debt off in the 40s. That's mm-hmm. not too long ago and it seems very simple that Yeah, for the French case, it's also um, complicated for them in Uh that they will often say that the the families and the people um, who own the slaves were paid directly for their lost property, aka humans. Right. Um, so this is part of the other kind of sinister aspect of what does it mean um, uh, for who got, who got paid? <laughs> Not necessarily the people who were stolen, but rather the plantation owners who profited from the free labor of black folk, black skin. Uh, so your article, we, we had a, a big discussion. Uh, one of our producers here, Angel, when your piece came out, we were talking about it. And um, it got me thinking about like black women in particular. And, and one, one thing that people are talking about and how I had never really connected the two in my own mind. But you know, black women are deemed the most educated. And so we already discussed the student loan debt aspect of it, the pay disparity. But black women are also, I think, culturally known as caregivers, taking care of parents, nephews, grandkids, their own families. And tying into that, what the 1994 crime bill, how that adds to this debt disparity. Yeah, so there are different ways in which um, uh, there's been a backlash historically against black Americans during different moments of freedom. We see this during Reconstruction and um, the moment in which uh, people are liberated and we're offered and told, okay, you can be given citizenship and maybe some land, maybe an education. And actually there were uh, black people, uh, black men specifically elected to um, uh, uh, to parliament, oh, sorry, Congress. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, 
that this uh, this is something that one sees uh, and in the context of the civil rights movement we see also many gains made but yet um, slowly but surely uh, austerity measures as well and um, by the time that the early 90s rolls around it's a bit more uh, complicated in the sense that on the one hand the crime bills that were um, created under Clinton came with uh, a new a new uh, version of Democrats who were um, very much pushing to the right in the sense of their policies, but they were also responding to um, uh, black some black members of uh, as communities who wanted to deal with uh, the rise of crime in their communities and aftermath of the um, uh, crack epidemic, not uh, through the fault of black people, but through drugs being brought into the communities. Uh, a very good book that kind of looks into this is uh, Locking Up Their Own, which dovetails like what the complications of and the, the tensions between the black leadership in some communities um, in places like Detroit, Chicago, etc., who were calling for harsh um, bills um, and politicians are black faces in high places who spe um, specifically um, weren't necessarily fulfilling the, the progressive policies that could have um, had something more like a pr prison abolition or harm reduction program, but rather um, doing the work of um, supporting things like the crime bill. And it's no accident that the crime bill also came around the same time as the Immigration Reform Act mm -hmm. under Clinton, which uh, began to criminalize um, migration. And so you see under Clinton, uh, Haitian migrants uh, uh, being uh, criminalized in the 90s, uh, being brought to Guantanamo Bay before it became a torture camp. It was also a place where Haitians were being deported mm -hmm. to. Yes, uh, you, something else that I think people don't think about a lot. You wrote about the debt of the elite and how that's not stigmatized because they can exploit a system designed for them. Break that down for our viewers. So the way that um, capitalism often rolls and um, is that rich uh, families and particularly people who invest will often borrow, uh, whether it's to um, buy swaps of lands and or to construct a factory. Uh, one particular um, uh, statistic that I thought was interesting is to think about the debt of the people that um, we know, for example, the current um, uh, person or president in the White House who has a personal debt of $315 million. Um, uh, dollars. Um, and this is one example of, of many uh, rich people where wealthy and rich people who have credit cards, who are able to um, fly on expensive planes, that is not something that is stigmatized. However, the debt of, of people, particularly those who were part of the financial crisis, um, mostly black people who were um, preyed upon, um, um, lost their homes. And in many cases, uh, particularly after the 2008 uh, crisis, where uh, people who had had pensions lost those pensions. Um, it is not the case, uh, according to my knowledge, um, that the current um, uh, president in the United States uh, has lost his home, has lost uh, his pensions. In fact, he's doing financially well, even though uh, he has uh, that debt. Um, and again, that's one of many examples uh, one could um, in doing Google search, uh, find also that uh, many movie stars, etc., are also um, indebted. 
All right, before we go, uh, tell us about, tell our viewers about your podcast, Decolonization in Action and where they can listen. So living here in Germany, I've been learning a lot, not just about um, some of the social benefits, like um, the question around um, free college for uh, university students, but I've also been learning about the um, Germany's um, colonial history, particularly its colonial history on the African continent. So as some people might know, in, uh, the Berlin Congress, which, which happened in 1884 to 1885, was when uh, European countries got together to part, um, carve out Africa without in the invitation or the agency of African people or leaders. And um, I, I knew and was aware of the, the influence of the French uh, and the British uh, and also the Spanish uh, colonization of the African continent, but not so much of the German. And living here and speaking to activists, artists, um, even musicians, um, um, people who are descendants of Namibians, of Tanzanians, who's um, in the case of Namibians, their skulls, uh, the skulls of the Herero people were brought to Germany and some of them are still here. Um, Tanzanians, um, the one of the largest collections of a, a dinosaur uh, is here in Berlin at the Natural History Museum, Natural History Museum, and it's still standing here, even though Tanzanians want it back. So understanding that complicated um, history and relationship between a history that was never told to me, that was kind of elided, not just to me, but to many Germans, is something that I wanted to look at. And so the podcast is trying to understand what does decolonization mean? How do people resist? How have people been using different forms of media, art, um, understanding science and its colonial history so that we can be able to hopefully um, change some of these power structures um, and imagine a new future, one that actually gives us more agency for those whose um, lives, histories, um, and even bodies have been stolen. Edna Bono, thank you so much for being here with us uh, this evening. I really appreciate your time. Okay, thank you. All right, that's it for the conversation tonight. I'm Brooke Thomas. Post game is up next, so stay tuned.